Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast, where I am thrilled to have two guests today. The first is David Smith. He is a professor of sociology in the National Security Affairs Department at the U.S. Naval War College. As a sociologist trained in military sociology and social psychology, he focuses his research on gender, work, and family issues. I also have Brad Johnson on the show. He is a professor of psychology in the Department of Leadership, Ethics, and Law at the United States Naval Academy and a faculty associate in the Graduate School of Education at Johns Hopkins University. Both of them are the authors, co-authors of Athena Rising, How and Why Men Should Mentor Women. Welcome, gentlemen, to the show. Thanks, Tiffany. Great to be here, Tiffany. It's like smarty pants on smarty pants, like two PhDs, sociology, psychology. I feel like I'm not going to be able to get much over on you two today. <laughs> That's what I feel like. <laughs> All right. Don't All right. So let's, yeah. let's jump right in. I like to start out uh, my podcast with something I call bullish and bearish. Bullish is you're for it. Bearish is you're against it. Are you ready? Let's go. All right. I'm going to start with Brad. Ready for it. Brad, yeah. bullish or bearish on Zoom backgrounds? I have to say that I am bearish on Zoom backgrounds because I am clueless on how to actually develop those. Um, I did see my buddy Dave try that at one point, and I thought it was a little corny. I, I like to just see Dave and others when I'm when I'm doing Zoom. All right, fair enough. So, Dave, bullish or bearish on Zoom backgrounds? I'm also bearish. Um, I, I feel like there's some authenticity there that uh, is, is okay, that we can we can share that with, with various people. I kind of agree, unless, you know, you need to clean your room. <laughs> oh. <laughs> then I'm all for Zoom backgrounds. <laughs> all right, next one. Bullish or bearish? Dave, I'm going to start with you. Staycations, since everyone's stuck at home. Staycations. Well, I would normally... Uh, say bearish on that, but clearly uh, th that is a thing right now, um, right now during the, the pandemic. And, and so I, I would say right now, you know, definitely bullish, but, and I think that's just, you know, a fact of, of where we are right now. But I, but I also think that it's, well, I, I tried that this summer and I live in Newport, Rhode Island and a great place to do a staycation. And I found it really hard to do. So as much as I would have liked to, to work out, it didn't work out quite the way I wanted. All right, Brad, how about you? Yeah, you know, so normally, Tiffany, I, I'm, I'm fairly uh, bullish on staycations because I'm an introvert. Dave knows this. You know, I, I, I love working on something in my office. Um, but, but even I, the introvert dude, is getting rather fatigued with this this stay at home uh, world. So I'm I'm actually looking forward to a real vacation at some point again. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I agree You're with here. you on that. All right, next one. Let's go, Brad. Back to you. Underwater cities. Oh, I that that does not appeal to me. Um, yeah, that makes me a little anxious. To you know, I, I see these underwater hotels, for example, and nah, I, that's just not me. All right, Dave, how about you? You know, I am intrigued by it, so I'm going to have to say bullish because one, it's a it's something that's really innovative and different, and and I you know my roots back in my bachelor 
degree days were in oceanography. And so I, I, I have a, a leaning that, that way. So yeah, I would have to say I'm bullish on that. All right. Well, thank you guys. You know, I, I try to make it just, you know, painless so that we can sort of get the creative juices flowing. So we now know that we have introverts. Uh, we need to be better at staycations and underwater cities drive a little bit of anxiety. I, I kind of with you at all of those things. Yeah. <laughs> so awesome. All right. Well, let's jump right in because I'm so excited about the work you guys have been doing, but I'd like to kind of level set the conversation uh, before we dig into to the amazing book. So, you know, we we often hear the term diversity and inclusion, uh, and I think that that elicits very different feelings, uh, not just from a gender perspective, what men think or what women think, but just in its pure definition. Would one of you like to just take a shot of how you guys? look at DNI and and what you think you know is is either overlooked accidentally right or the subtlety behind of uh, the definitions either one of you want to start that go ahead Dave yeah happy to jump in here so it's a great point and and you're right the the terms often get used interchangeably or incorrectly and I, I think that's uh, again just people not taking the time to really understand and, and the importance of it in, in particular. And so, you know, we, again, look at diversity and diversity is often looked at as just kind of counting heads and looking at, again, kind of the, the representation within, within an organization or a group in particular, which is important. Um, and again, the research is really clear out there about the importance of diversity in terms of performance, team performance, organizational performance, that there is a higher level of, of just effectiveness, of decision-making, of uh, creativity and innovation. Uh, and again, but those have, to, those have to be in line with inclusion because diversity without inclusion does not often lead to those, those outcomes. And so when, when people are talking about the benefits of having a diverse organization, diverse experiences, diverse perspectives and thoughts, it's also that those people feel included. They feel like they belong. They're socially connected in a variety of different ways in the organization. They see a path forward for them uh, that they feel valued and their contributions are valued in that way. People who do not feel that in an organization, the more diversity you have, is it's probably going to work against you in those ways. And I think, again, we have to remember that, um, again, we all have different equities is the other, the other word that we often talk about here that we have different equities and things that are important to us and, and, and how we understand what those things are for different groups of people, I think is really important. And that's where, again, good, good leadership values that and is talking and understanding that and getting that feedback from their people. What I've found really interesting, you know, as, as I've done this podcast, because, you know, I thought I knew, you know, a little bit about DNI before I, I sort of began this journey of doing this show and how much I've learned over the you know, three years I've been doing this, that even just expanding my own thinking, that diversity of thought, you know, Brad, you mentioned that, you know, you're uh, an introvert, like, so even diversity of thought, right? Someone who's an extrovert, introvert, um, someone who likes to mull over, you know, a, a thought versus just kind of jumping in or so it's not just gender and race and language and origin and religion and ge it's kind of everything, right? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, Tiffany. And, you know, for the research Dave and I have been doing in the last couple of years around allyship in the workplace, this has been such a central theme. Um, you know, 
how do leaders um, show that they've got this awareness of what it's like for people to show up uh, at work? And, you know, as a white male, um, I, I may just very easily make assumptions that everyone feels the same as I do in the workplace. Um, and that that often is off base. So, you know, um, Dave was talking about the difference in diversity and real inclusion. You know, we we encounter male leaders who's, who will just say, hey, we just hired a black woman, so we're good. We're good on the whole DEI thing. And and the question, of course, to follow up with that is, well, that's terrific, but does she how does how does it feel for her to show up in your all male workplace and and do you have a sense of her day to day experience? Does she feel included? Uh, does she feel heard? Does she feel dismissed? These are the harder questions and i and I think you're right, Tiffany. You could apply that to almost any difference, whether it's you know race or ethnicity or sexual orientation or even personality differences. Yeah, and I feel like whenever I get into these conversations, um, not on the podcast, just sort of, you know, at an event or, you know, I'm speaking on a panel or I, I sometimes feel like I sense the response is if one gains, the other loses. You know, that kind of equality and diversity and inclusion is is not one is better, at least in my opinion, right? One is not better than the other. It's everyone is equally as good, <laughs> right? So... Yeah. Yeah. We often do. And we were just having the same conversation with one of our colleagues about the fact that we get into this kind of either or this dichotomous perspective of we call it the zero sum bias or thinking or perspective. Right. That as one person uh, gains in an organization, that means that somebody somebody else is fundamentally losing in that way. And which, again, from a that is kind of the antithetical to how we look at it, you know, in, in particular around diversity, because it really, diversity begins to expand capacity and ability of, for an organization and what they can do. And so we lose, you know, just by by being constrained by that that zero-sum thinking, we lose out on all sorts of opportunities out there. And, and I think that's one of the challenges is getting over some of the zero-sum bias that can come very naturally to, to a lot of people. Well, you know, the the other thing I find fascinating, too, is, you know, there's just been this announcement by the um, Academy of Motion Pictures that for a feature film to be considered, I I might ruin this, but a feature film to be considered for movie of the year, they have to meet certain diversity and inclusion benchmarks. And there's there's which I'm guessing you guys are aware of. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and, uh, you know, what I, what I found fascinating was you, you have this very polarizing response, <laughs> you know, from men and women, like it's not just one or the other, or what's, what's your thought on doing things like that? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, Tiffany, I, I, and I'm certainly no expert on the motion picture, you know, question itself. I think that's really interesting. Um, I will say in, in the work that Dave and I have been doing for the new book, Good Guys, um, we have found that organizations that are really getting this right actually do set very clear objectives, right? On, on diversity, on equity, right? And maybe that relates to, to pay uh, equity and, and on the experience of genuine inclusion, which often links to retention. So companies that are serious about this do set 
these very clear aspirational objectives, and then they hold themselves accountable to it, right? And, you know, I'm guessing the Association of Motion Picture uh, community will be will be finding ways to do the accountability part. Um, you have to communicate broadly. This is who we are, and this is why these objectives are important. I've got to hold leaders and managers under me accountable, you know, for these objectives. And then even to take it a step further, we see companies not only holding themselves accountable, but then holding others that they do business with accountable, right? So, hey, we're not going to do business with suppliers or clients um, whose companies or organizations are not also prioritizing, measuring, and then reporting out their, their DEI uh, sort of progress. So um, I do think the accountability and the transparency piece really is important, even if it's hard to swallow, um, you know, at times. Yeah, and I'd say, you know, I'm, I'm also very interested in uh, the whole uh, allyship, you know, sort of champions and allies, because I think people don't understand the power of that. You know, people will often ask me, oh, do you have a mentor? And I feel like I have champions um, and I have had very specific mentor, but a mentor and a champion to me are very different. Uh, and so how have you guys framed up in both good guys and uh, how and, and why men should mentor women? Um, both of the books, really, because Good Guys is on its way out, are coming out. Um, and so, you know, h- how do you define that sort of champion ally uh, influence? Uh, Dave, maybe maybe I'll toss that to you. Yeah. And and so this can be in a variety of different settings, just like you said, I think, Tiffany. And, and we talked about this, you know, in our first book, Athena Rising, very specifically from a mentoring and sponsoring perspective. And and even, you know, with mentoring, great mentors out there are doing a lot of the championing and advocacy because, again, who knows who knows their mentee, their protege better than them? Uh, they know what they need. They know their career goals and dreams, and they know what they need developmentally and things. If they're positioned to do that, we often find that, that mentors are doing that already. Um, and they certainly do it, we find, more specifically, men are doing this for other men out there. Uh, but and that was part of the reason when we started doing the research for Athena Rising, what we were looking at about why weren't men doing some of the same type of work, these same functions around career development, career goals, and, and the advocacy piece, championing women in the same way. And there was just a, there were a lot of, a lot of reasons, but men often had perceptions about women that, wow, they were, and they were unconscious in many ways that they just saw them as not being leader material. They were a risky investment for some way in some way. And so they just wouldn't, weren't investing their own social capital and time and resources to do that. But what we found with good guys is, is that from an allyship perspective is really all of us can be allies for each other and do the championing. Right. And I think there's a, there's a great example that Brad and I came across when we were doing our work was with JP Morgan Chase. And they asked, they just said, hey, if we could have men in particular, this is with a gender focus, but you can do this with other groups as well. Um, men, if you could just spend 30 minutes a week, they call it the 35-1 pledge, 30 minutes a week um, talking with a woman, getting to know her better and understanding her experiences there in the workplace and, and building that connection, and then spend five minutes a week 
uh, congratulating a woman on her wins or her accomplishments or achievements that that you've you've, you've learned about in this in this period of time. And then for one minute a week, we want you to go and when she's not in the room, go talk behind her back and talk positively about what she's doing out there and the great great accomplishments. Because these this in this thirty six minutes, these are things that we as guys do for each other all the time. We don't even think about it. We don't even recognize that we're doing it in many ways until we get into a conversation and we can kind of bring it out. But here in 36 minutes, they and they've asked men to take this pledge. And again, it's just a it's a very small um, time commitment, but it makes a huge difference in what we can do for each other in terms of being allies and champions. And so give an example. You know, I, I think that, you know, it, with everything going on right now, the social injustice and sort of these conversations, I can tell you I've had that I had never had before. Right. And so um, learning, asking, listening, all of that, uh, I feel like um, it needs to be a safe place. And I wonder if the actual physical separation and not seeing people face to face, you know, you it doesn't always have to be a Zoom call, could be a call, gives you an entirely different feel. I mean, you know, there's the study, I forget, isn't it like a Janice and a John or something? And, and it, it was in 2013 and they sent off resumes to, you know, a uh, science college, exact same resume, except the only difference was the difference in the name. So all, everything was exactly the same, but the bias was there and the men got uh, more opportunity to interview and then more money. Um, and I know that it was back in 2013, but still, you know, very, and, and unconscious, I'm going to give it an unconscious bias, if you will. <clears throat> but somebody actually standing up and saying, hey, I, I think that that's not the right position to take, or hey, I think you're being, or hey, let her finish talking, or hey, you know what I mean? Like that allyship and champion is also giving space for someone to be able to kind of think through or talk through what they're trying to do. Um, and you may need other men or other people to, to help pave the way. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's so much in what you just said, Tiffany. But let me let me just address this last part um, that that was so crucial. Um, yes. So it, in all our research for male allyship and and good guys, this theme came up over and over again. So you know, and you have to be careful how you deliver this to men in terms of guidance because. What we're not asking is for men to become rescuers, right, or get on their horse and, and do the white knighting kind of thing. This is not about rescuing. This is about creating space, stepping back from the spotlight. You know, men with our, our privilege in the workplace, we often, uh, you know, it's assumed that we're going to be the speakers, that we're going to talk first, that we're going to talk more. Um, that if there's a big assignment, it's going to be a dude who who gets that. So. If you really want to move the dial on inclusion, and in this case, gender inclusion, um, you have to be willing to step back. You have to recognize your privilege. You have to create space and then call out women's voices, especially when women are in a real minority. I have to find ways to give her the mic, to call out her expertise, to talk about her achievements, to say, you know, it really should be Tiffany who's running this meeting, or I'd love to hear what Tiffany has to say about this. Um, there are so many ways that I can do that. And even in this work from home environment, I can still do that, whether it's on Zoom or 
you know, on emails, hey, let's let's not have this email conversation until we get Tiffany in the stream because she's she's a thought leader on this. So absolutely, I love that theme, uh, making space and then including voices. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> I was fascinated when I heard the story of the term mansplaining. <laughs> when I, I I've heard the, heard the term, obviously. Uh, I've even joked with the term, but I did not know the history of the term. Do either one of you want to share the history of the term? Uh, Dave, do you know the history? We should probably know this. Tiffany can help us here if you don't. Yeah, I saw I saw a uh, there was a, a great New York Times article about it the other day. Um, I was trying to remember all the, the history because history is not one of my strong suits, but it goes back. I mean, way back into history. There was, it was a great piece um, about that, but now Tiffany, uh, I don't remember the history. of Yeah. It. So it was, so it was, I, sorry to put you on the spot on that. It, you know, it, it, but it was uh, um, back in 2008, uh, a woman wrote an essay about um, this photographer and she was at a cocktail party and somehow the conversation came up about this photographer. So she started saying something. Well, she got completely interrupted by this gentleman who was mansplaining to her, basically, uh, everything that she should learn about this photographer. And that if she really wants to get educated, that she should read this book, not realizing that the person who wrote the book was her. <laughs> Yeah. Awesome. Oh my God. Yeah. There, there are so many examples of this. And I have to say, Tiffany, that when Dave and I were, you know, both for Athena Rising and Good Guys, when we were doing all our interviews with women, you know, key stakeholders that we were asking about, you know, what is your experience with mentors and, and allies, allies who happen to be men? What did, what did they do? Dave and I would get together after some of these interviews and just say, Man, are you hearing over and over again that women can't get, you know, two sentences out in meetings without being interrupted by a dude? And the other the other big one we heard over and over that just shocked us because it doesn't happen to us very often, if ever, was the whole idea of having your your great idea stolen, right? And you know, so she gives us great uh creative thought in a meeting, everyone, everyone's kind of, eh. and then five minutes later, a dude repackages it. And everyone's like, wow, good idea, Bob. Uh, you know, that apparently is ubiquitous in the experience of a lot of women at work. And, and I think we men just miss that. Yeah. And I would tell you that, that it has happened to me so many times. And, you know, I, now I just smile. <laughs> now I just smile. Because I'll tell you, and whether you're a, a, a guy or a girl, like I, I feel like it happens both ways. You know, I mean, I've seen it happen to men as well, where they'll say something and, and maybe they're a little more demure, or a little more introverted, right? You know what I'm saying? Like it could just be a little more quiet. Um, and so they say something and then it's just completely ignored or, you know, they don't ever have a good idea anyway, whatever, whatever the case might be. So, you know, I think that diversity and inclusion um, I, I think it has gotten a bad rap as just being about women. And I, and I just, I feel like it's just anybody who doesn't give somebody the space to 
say what they want to, you know, what they're thinking, but more importantly, actually listening. And so in that story of mansplaining of the history of the term, when she was trying to explain it, and then when he, it was somebody else, I guess, had said, you know, she's the author of the book. It, it took, he kept talking. <laughs> like he didn't even stop to let it sink in to be like, oh, wait a minute. Like I'm trying to explain to this person about this, you know, great photographer and all this history about to the person who actually wrote the book. And in her head, which was, I also found fascinating, her head immediately went to, wait a second, did I not know there was another book about this photographer? Immediately she thought, it wasn't her book. It was someone else's book. Like, so where you also get into the habit of receiving that where you question yourself. Like she questioned herself for a moment. Then she's like, wait a second, hold on time out. Like I know this person better than anybody. Hence why I wrote the book. <laughs> you know what I mean? But for a moment you get that in hesitation because you've been so trained. And once again, the you is the collective you. It doesn't just happen to, to women. Uh, and most definitely you could say it happens uh, in, uh, amongst race as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, I think this is, like you said, it's one of these things that men just don't even recognize it's happening. But if, and this is one of the things that we key on with, with good guys and, and right up front, you've got to, we got to start working on developing our awareness and, and seeing these things. And much like Brad said about this whole idea of, of, of women having their ideas stolen uh, and then claimed by men, which we call bro appropriation, that, you know, in, until you, you know about it, you can't, you can't see the problem. Right. And, and so Brad and I, I remember, we, I remember having this distinct conversation about this, that I asked him, like, you ever have this happen to you? Nope, me either. But now that I know what it is, I can look for it and now I can do something about it. So it's the old, see something, say something, but it's hard if um, men don't have that awareness and they don't have allies, both men and women, who can provide that really important direct feedback because they just don't understand how disrespectful it is and how much damage it might be doing to her own um, self-esteem or you know this creating this self-doubt, as you mentioned. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I, I have this whole talk track that I give if I speak at women's conferences called Building Your Confidence Muscle. And I say, it's just like going to the gym, right? Building your confidence, you're going to get sore, try it again, try it again, right? I mean, it's not like you go to the gym and all of a sudden you can walk out and do Mr. or Miss Olympia or do the you know Ironman triathlon, right? It takes time <laughs> and a lot of training and a lot of soreness and a lot of failure and a lot of grit and all of that. And I feel like that about confidence. And so, you know, I, I started talking about it when I realized when I would get off stage that people would come up to talk to me and I would notice some of them were extremely nervous for, and for whatever reason, like I'm not making any comment about it being me, or I'm just saying they were just nervous. Right. And I realized early on that that 45 seconds or 60 seconds that I had a quick interaction with them would shape their confidence going forward. If I shut them down and didn't have just time to even be, um, you know, compassionate about, you know, Oh, thank you. I, I just can't talk to you. Right. You know what I mean? But just to be rude and walk away, like I don't have time that you shoot down that confidence and then it carries on, you know, and if you give them that, uh, you know, reinforcement that the behavior was welcome, like, you know, you came up to me to say something that it was, it was welcome, then maybe they'll try it again the next time and they'll just try it again and they'll try it again. And so you have this ability, I think, in an unknown way to either support and lift up that confidence for someone else or shut it down. 
Yeah, I, I think you're right, Tiffany. And, you know, this this so aligns with all the research that we see on what excellent mentoring looks like. And and certainly the maybe the most important mentoring function is simply making space, uh, you know, giving giving your time, um, doing the affirmation, uh, keeping an open door. Uh, you know, those things are not big lifts. It's a cost in terms of time. And, you know, uh, I, I just think that folks that really want to be allies for those that are disadvantaged in the workplace or those that want to be great mentors, you have to show up and give the attention, the time, and the affirmation. And that's not a heavy lift, but there's a cost. Absolutely. Well, why don't we, you know, sort of start to wrap this up and talk a little bit about Good Guys, about its release and and sort of, you know, what what you think people would enjoy from the from the new book. Yeah. So the book releases on October 13th, uh, Harvard Business Review Press. And so we're excited. It's available for pre-order now and all three versions, Audible, Kindle or, or hardcover. Uh, and I, I think, you know, We've talked a little bit about allyship here, but I think one of the important keys is understanding what do we mean by it? Because I think we've used a lot of these terms around champion and advocacy and, and certainly accomplice is another one, co-conspirators that we often talk about. But when Brad and I found when we did the work for, for good guys was that allyship really kind of comes in two parts. And the first is we've been talking about this idea of how do we as men show up in the workplace in terms of the, re- the relationships we have with women there and, and being supportive and collaborative and, and looking out for, for creating gender equity. And then when we, we find gender inequities, doing something about that. But a lot of that happens through our, again, the collaborations and these supportive relationships we have in the workplace. And that's kind of the easy part, holding yourself accountable for doing that work. The hard part is the second part. And we had a lot of men that we interviewed too. Oh, by the way, these men were nominated by the, the senior women that we interviewed. So there were no men who were able to self-promote their way into the book. Um, but these guys would talk about how the action part of, of allyship was so critically important and doing the public allyship is how they talked about it. And, and being able to speak up or the, see, when you see something, say something and do something about it. And just having the, when you have that awareness of how bias might be created and the everyday practices of what we do in the workplace, they look for that and then they act, then they take action on how to change that. How can I create that and eliminate that and kind of break down the status quo a little bit so that it's more fair for everyone and, and everybody feels more included and feel like they belong. And so this gets a kind of the systemic change that we've got to get to. Otherwise, we'll continue to have to go back and forth and have this conversation over the next 257 years or whatever it is now till we get to gender equity and parity out there. Well, I, I think that there's so much to be learned, right? And I and I would say, you know, for those listeners, uh, what would be your parting words of ways in which they could ensure that they're being allies and champions and lifting up, regardless of who is on the receiving end of that, right? What are what are sort of one or two things you could give? Um, and I'll, I'll start with you, uh, Brad. Yep, um, I'll give you a, just. Two things that that I think we're always shocked about because they seem so straightforward, but we hear them over and over. Um, Show up with a learning orientation and show up with some humility in the workplace. Find out about the work experiences and what it's like for your colleagues who are often in a more disadvantaged status, whoever they are. 
what's it like for them to show up? What are the headwinds they face? What are the obstacles? And just listen, um, establish that kind of trusting relationship and listen. Dave, how about you? Yeah, I think one of the one, I'm going to give you two. And one in particular, I think this may, may come out of left field for you a little bit, but we talk about this, that it's great that, you know, you can be an ally in the workplace. And we often see this where guys throw on their ally cape and they, they appear to be a great ally in the workplace, but women are watching him and they understand that he's not really all that because he's not doing it at home. And so Brad and I often, when we're talking to men in particular, remind them that, hey, you've got to start by being a all-in, full-in ally at home first. Gender equity starts there. Because if you're not an equal partner at home doing your fair share of the invisible labor that goes on often at home, and that's everything from the household duties and tasks to childcare, to the emotional labor part, the organizing and planning and all of that included in there, then you're going to have a hard time being taken seriously at, at work. And so, um, we tell guys, do the dishes. Uh, when you leave to go take your kid to the doctor, and I hope you're doing that on occasion, that you leave loudly. We want to tell everybody, hey, I'm leaving. I got to go take my kids to the doctor. That's what that's what I've got to go do. And even in today's virtual world, if you got if you can't make a meeting or you got to leave early because of something like a family responsibility, talk about it, normalize it for everyone. It really makes a difference uh, for the other men in the room as well as the women. So I think it's a, it's, that's really powerful. And the last one is really about relationships and men to get better and understand and develop this awareness and to be able to take action and be a better ally every day. They've got to have more women in their networks. And that's everything from the mentoring networks and sponsoring to their just their friends, peers and close colleagues. Uh, we like to think about having a women in there as a gender confidant, somebody who can pull you aside and say, hey, I know you're working on this. Um, so let me give you a little bit of feedback here, because often we find there's this gap around allyship that we think we're doing all these great things as men. But when you ask women, they say, nah, not quite so much. And a lot of it's because we just don't have that feedback about how are we doing or are we are we having the desired effect that we, we want to. So it's important to really diversify all of your networks out there. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a great way to wind this down. So I just want to thank you both, Brad and Dave, for spending some time with us today on the What's Next podcast. I hope everyone enjoyed the conversation as much as I do and or I did and that they go out and they be an ally and a champion uh, and lift people up regardless. So thank you guys both for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Happy to be here. Thanks, Tiffany. What a fun conversation with those two good guys, Dave and Brad, helping us understand the power of being a champion and an ally for those that work around you, regardless of gender, race, or any other difference that we may have. So I hope you found their insights and ideas informative. Please go pick up a copy of their book, Good Guys, or you can pick up uh, Athena Rising, How and Why Men Should Mentor Women. I appreciate you listening to the What's Next podcast. Please subscribe, leave some feedback, share with your friends, and make sure you have a great rest of your day.